This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library. Today's event is part of our One Book, One College program on Tony Horwitz's book, um, Confederates in the Attic. So if you haven't read it, I encourage you to go out and get a copy. We have some in the library. There's some for sale uh, in the bookstore. Um, today we're talking about the Civil War, and um, I'm excited about this about why the South never had a chance, so not anything controversial or anything. Um, I'm happy to welcome history faculty member Jim McIntyre to offer his thoughts and um, to keep us engaged and uh, provoke some thoughts. So with that, yeah, right, I know. With that, I'll turn it over. So thank you again for coming. Thank you. Um, Thank you all for coming. Okay, so grand strategy, north and south. Why the Confederacy never had a chance. Um, and in putting this together, I come to some, a, a kind of a different conclusion than I started out thinking I would end up at. Uh, and that will become clear as I go through the presentation. And I've actually only got about 25, 30 minutes because I want to have plenty of time for questions. And I know that after that, people's eyes start to glaze over and I start to look out on sort of a cast shot of Walking Dead. We don't want that. Um, so, okay. Uh, first off, what is grand strategy? Okay. Um, what we call what we call grand strategy, or what the actual contemporaries refer to as grand strategy, is something that would today be more along the lines of st- strategy and operations combined, and which probably doesn't mean much. Okay, and I understand that because. It, this is more of a military history presentation, and it should be, you know, this is a profession. It has its own jargon, and I deal in that quite frequently. Um, so to kind of set up the levels that we'll be dealing with, at the very top you have policy simply defined. That's the goals of the state. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want? Right. Strategy. How do, you, how do you plan to achieve those goals? Operations, uh, actions taken in order to put your plan into action. This also, as a caveat, usually has a um, theater, a geographic location in mind. Okay? So you'll hear about in the Civil War the Eastern Theater, the Western Theater, and so forth. Uh, you could even talk about the Coastal Theater with the Union blockade of the South. Okay. And then tactics are simply the method of acting. Um, in, in this case, how do you fight battles? What specifically do you do on the battlefield? And I'm really not going to dip into that level very much, given the parameters I'm working in. Um, so Confederate strategy, okay, which is based off of their policy. Okay, and, and if you stop and think about it, before the first shots are fired in 1861, the Confederacy have actually achieved their main policy goal, which is we want independence from the Union. We want out of this Union. Well, they've pretty much done that, right? These states, uh, beginning with South Carolina and then going through Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, so forth, um, they have seceded. They've left. They're out on their own. So how do we preserve that? Okay. And the person who ends up being sort of the chief motivator here, um, or chief prime mover, if you will, Jefferson Davis, 
Okay, as far as coalescing the different ideas into a workable strategy, or at least what they hoped would be a workable strategy. This is my first point of why they really didn't have a chance. Okay, uh, Jeff Davis is a West Point graduate. He's a Mississippi plantation owner, slave owner. He's a West Point graduate. Um, his first military experience was in the Black Hawk War in Illinois. No Black Hawk War fans? Uh, got one in, oh, two in the back, excellent. All right, yeah, no one cares about the Black Hawk War. If you read about the Black Hawk War, you'll know why no one cares about the Black Hawk War. Um, and then he goes on, he raises a unit of Mississippi cavalry to take, volunteers, okay? Uh, they had a really interesting system in the U.S. at this time. The, we kept the regular standing military very, very small. And, and again, I'd be happy to get into that, why we did it during questions and answers afterwards. Suffice it to say for the moment, we kept our regular military very, very small most of the time. And then when wars came along, we had this idea of, of bringing out militia or later on what were called volunteers. And we called this the dual army system or expandable army concept. And, and one of the nice perks of this, if you're someone like Jeff Davis, right, and you're a young, younger guy, you've got some previous military experience, you're looking to get into politics, you want to prove your leadership, you can raise up a unit of volunteers because if you, if you recruit it, you command it. <laughs> it's kind of a nice deal. Okay, and they, they actually did see some combat in the Mexican War. Um, and herein lies the problem, okay? Um, the Confederates decide that they need to basically fight a defensive war and they need to hold together until they fight the North to the standstill. Um, and one of the most recent people to look at this, Don Stoker, who's at the Naval War College postgraduate program in Monterey, calls this a cordon defense. Meaning, the Confederates decide, hey, we need to defend everything here. We need to defend all of this. Does anyone see kind of a problem? <laughs> like, okay, this is where most of your population is, but you still need to hold on to these areas. Is that really worth it? Okay, but another, you know, and a problem here then becomes, okay, you have a chance of gaining independence, of fighting this successful defensive war, I would, if, if you're willing to concede territory. Let Arizona go, man. There's nothing there. But can you do that? Po you know, Jeff Davis is president of the Confederate States of America. He is a politician. Um, so could you imagine a politician telling constituents, look, we're at war and we're going to let your state get invaded and trounced for the good of the rest of the country. Everybody okay with that? What do you think the response would be? It's not going. So they're kind of in a corner from the outset, right? There's, there's, their choice set is limited, and it's and Arizona is just an extreme example. Really, you could make the case much better for places uh, Arkansas, northern Texas. There's really not there. Sorry if there's any Arkansas, Texas fans here, but they really didn't have much to offer the Confederacy at this point. Um, Another problem is if they, this could succeed if they could secure foreign aid and alliances. But then again, you run into this idea that 
if you concede territory to consolidate your defense and be more effective, does anyone want to back up an army or a state that seems to be losing territory? Right. So you're kind of forced back into this position of we have to hold everything. Um, and they stick with that, much to their default. Now, for the Union, okay, um, and strategy becomes, goals become to restore the Union, eventually to restore the Union without slavery. There is a, this ending slavery was not the, the goal of the North from the outset. It is really from 1862-63 with the Emancipation Proclamation, which I will talk about momentarily. Um, and to do that, one of, the, one of the first people to propose a plan, okay, um, Winfield Scott, he is born in 1790. Um, his first military experience is in the War of 1812. It is now 1860. He is still in the army. Okay. He is the commanding general of the army. Uh, and he looks at the map. Back up a few and look at this confederacy again. And he, and he takes a good hard look at this and says, well, we can do this. The South really doesn't have much industry, and I'll talk about that later. They don't have much industry, but they have a lot of cotton. They have a lot of this cash crop they can sell on foreign markets and utilize to provide the war materials they can't manufacture on their own. So we should probably blockade them to prevent that from happening, cut off their economic lifeline. Um, then we need to invade the South um, over land, possibly utilizing the inland waterways, i.e. the Mississippi, the Ohio, the Tennessee, and so forth, um, and break it up and, and divide it into ever smaller chunks that we can then occupy and reassert control over. Okay? Scott is laughed at by his colleagues. They call, him, they call this the anaconda plan after, after the snake. Right? So they, they kind of laugh, saying, oh, yeah, you're just going to wrap this all up and strangle it like an anaconda. Um, He's eventually, his subordinates, chiefly uh, General McClellan, unseat him, get him pushed to the side and out of the army. He ends up as commandant of West Point, though, until after the war. Um, and, and again, a significant force in this is Abraham Lincoln. Um, he, uh, Abraham Lincoln has virtually no military experience coming into the presidency, except he did share uh, about a month stint in the Illinois militia during... Ready for this? The Black Hawk War. <laughs> okay. See, that Black Hawk War keeps getting overlooked here. Formative experience. Running all over Illinois. Looking for Indians who aren't there anymore. Um, so at any rate, he, but he does take a very active interest. He actually pursued... The big problem for Lincoln, I would argue, and I think a lot of other historians uh, would, would line up on this as well, that is, is not so much what to do it's invade and occupy. It's, it's getting a general who will actually do it. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, one of the big problems they run into then is uh, Lincoln's relationship with McClellan, which I'll talk about shortly. Okay, so here's the overall. So trying to restore these, these gray states to the Union overall is going to be a big problem. Okay. Um, other problems, as I said... Union strategy will work if they can find leadership willing and capable of putting it into execution. And also, secondly, and, and this is often overlooked, 
right? If the country's willing to expend a large amount of resources, we're talking armies that will be well in excess of 100,000 men, right? The army, the U.S. Army before the American Civil War is around 20,000. So it's going to grow enormously, okay? The Navy is tiny. It will grow as well. Um, and also providing all the materiel to keep those soldiers able and sailors able to do their jobs is going to be an enormous capital investment and getting the country willing to spend the money to do that. Um, but again, that is often overlooked. That's kind of less of a problem in the grand scheme. Right? And as I mentioned, there's a change in union strategy. And, it's, and to me, it's kind of a logical evolution, one to the other. Look, in the end, and I, I should probably be uh, upfront about this, I don't put much stock in the states' rights argument for, for Confederate, pro-Confederacy types. Um, because what states' right, and the only states' right I've ever seen is your right in some southern states to own another human being. Okay, so I really don't see where this, is, this holds much merit. Um, so that being said, in the North, if you're going to rebuild the Union, and you know, you've kind of got to wake up. Why did the Union split in the first place? What caused this? And for a good two decades at least, the burning issue that they keep trying to push under the carpet is slavery. So what's the point of fighting a war to bring the Union back together if you hold on to the institution that tore it apart in the first place? You follow? So it, it seems to evolve out of, and there's, there's a lot of politicking that goes on as well, um, that... that you know, there are, there, there's a minority of abolitionists in the North, certainly. Um, there are some very vocal proponents of this. Lincoln's move towards emancipation again, and, and uh, I just attended a very fine lecture on that from a colleague Tuesday in the history department. Um, but his move seems to have been fair. Lincoln's move seems to have been kind of slow, uh, certainly out of step with the more extreme, more radical Republicans, more radical members of his own party. But he does put out this Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and for our purposes here, I'm not going to talk about it as a, as a document of, of racial equality or anything like that. This is a war strategy at this point. When it's issued, it comes out um, just in late September 1862, just after this massive bloodletting in Maryland at a place called Antietam Creek. To this day, the bloodiest single day in American military history. Okay, Because everyone who gets killed there is American, north or south, right? Um, at any rate, what it says, paraphrasing, is that um, all, all slaves belonging to owners in states still in rebellion against the United States government as of 1863 will be forever freed. And the wording here, Lincoln's a lawyer. They choose words carefully, right? <laughs> um, most of the time, he's, well, let me put it this way. Lincoln was a good lawyer. So is he going to choose his words carefully? Um, are there slaves in states that are still part of the United States in 1862? Yes, and some of them are crucial states too, making this a successful effort on the part of the North. Okay, specifically um, Kentucky, West Virginia has some, uh, Maryland and Delaware, which surround the U.S. Capitol, are also slave states. Now, Delaware, Delaware, okay. Um, if you've been there, I don't need to say anything more. 
but Delaware, there's something like 1,700. But Maryland, there's still a pretty fair amount. And again, those two states combined would cut off the nation's capital if they should decide to secede. And telling them they have to end slavery in their states could force a decision, potentially, um, at least a grassroots movement towards secession. So the wording here is careful. Also, it deprives the South of a labor resource, okay? which is also something that's different about this conflict. All right. um, and the problem then with emancipation, not everyone in the North favors this change in, in strategy and policy. Okay. There's, there's a, quite a deal, good deal of resistance to it. Okay. It's obligatory uh, when I'm talking about strategy and policy. I think that I throw in a quote from the German military thinker Karl von Clausewitz. So here you go. Okay. Um, so war is an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. All right. um, and I have this in here because it's kind of leading into, okay, how are these people deriving their ideas? What's the source? How are they thinking of, if we're going to win this war, we have to do A, B, and C? Where are they getting that solution set? Okay. Clausewitz, though he was um, part of the debate in Europe, didn't make it over here until 1871-72. Okay. Clausewitz was a, a Prussian army officer who served in the wars against Napoleon and in his later years, he wrote or was working on a book called Vom Krieg, On War. Right? Um, he actually died before completing the final draft. His widow published it after his death. It's now one of the hallmarks of military theory. Okay? But he's not alone. Um, Napoleon... Okay. Um, Napoleon dominated the affairs of Western Europe. Sorry, had to. Because um, I always find it entertaining that the, the greatest French military leader of all time wasn't French. He was Italian, actually. Um, so at any rate, he dominated Europe for a good two decades. Okay, And for a solid ten years, the man never lost a battle. Okay? And in fact, he was known to decimate opponents often in a single battle. In other words, they would fight this one massive battle, and, and whoever the opposition was, was it, whether it be the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, would say, okay, that's enough, what do you want? And they'd sit down and make peace. Okay? And so th he has a pretty impressive win streak. Okay? For, a while, for a while, he was probably competitive with our Blackhawks right now. Okay, he was doing pretty good. And as a result, afterwards, you have this whole group of people who lived through the experience publishing memoirs and also trying to figure out what was this guy's secret. And one of the guys who, who is positively prolific in this is right there. Okay, um, Here's a fun European name for you. Baron Antoine Henri Jomini. Okay, or uh, Jomini. Okay. He is a Swiss-born... Uh, Officer, he's a colonel for a while on the staff of one of Napoleon's generals, a guy named Ney. Um, and Jomini eventually gets in trouble with the French. He then joins the Russians. The Napoleonic Wars are the last time where you really see that. Beforehand, it had happened a great deal. People, officers would switch armies. They considered it very much a profession, um, unlike being a national service. At any rate, he, after these wars, becomes positively prolific, okay? The guy starts pumping out books and articles and papers and any violence that goes down between countries, he comments on, okay? Um, and he comes up with these ideas 
Uh, much of it is about what he calls interior lines. So you get between your opponents and you can keep them from, from, gain, you know, from helping each other out and defeat them one at a time um, is, is one of his sort of concepts. That's a rough version of interior lines. And the reason I bring him up is the guy at the bottom here. So you kind of see a progression. Okay? That gentleman is someone named Dennis Hart Mahan, who, is, uh, who graduates from West Point in 1826. He goes on a little... The army paid for him to go to Europe for a couple years. That's kind of nice. Right? Uh, and while there, he picks up Jomini. Okay, Picks up some of his works, starts to translate them, starts to adapt them, comes back here and starts teaching at West Point and is, uh, basically resigns his army commission to become a full-time instructor, full-time professor at West Point um, as of 1832. And, and so... Most of the officers I'm going to talk about from here on out received their instruction in military theory from that man. Okay. He has a tremendous influence. He is still at West Point in 1871, um, and a, a visiting committee, sort of a government inspection, comes through, and they recommend to the leadership at West Point that, you know, you might want to force this guy to retire. Um, he was like some of the faculty we were discussing earlier, he, rather than retire, he jumped into a paddle wheel um, on a paddle wheel steamer, committed suicide rather than retire. So anyhow, uh, one, of the, one of the people he has a tremendous effect upon is George McClellan, pictured here. Okay. Little Mac um, believed himself rather Napoleonic. Can you tell? I pose here. Okay. Perceived himself to be... A, and, and look, McClellan is a bright guy. Okay, he is a very intelligent individual. He's near the top of his class at West Point. Um, goes on, uh, serves in the army, runs a railroad. Not a, not a dull individual. His and, and comes up with some fairly good ideas. The problem he can come up with ideas, but getting him never do something is the problem. Um, every time he, f he goes and fights against the Confederacy, he tends to you know, inflate their numbers. He always, always, always needs more men before he can possibly act. Think about that. It's perfect if you want to do nothing, right? <laughs> Unless I have 50,000 more men, I can't possibly go in because I know we'll be defeated. How do you know that? Um, and, and he becomes a real problem. He's eventually relieved of duty um, and succeeded by, and this is fun too, because, um, you know, it's, it's really nice to say you're second in your class, you're third in your class. He's uh, 29th in a class of 33 from West Point, Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but he understood what the way things were going. And, and what happens is, by 1864, Lincoln has seen in Grant a, a general who will actually do what Lincoln has considered, and Grant also kind of understands, needs to be done, and, and which I'll fill in in a few moments, because it, it plays to the North's advantages in here. When you're constructing a strategy, you really need to be aware that this, you know, let's play to our advantages. What do we have in our favor, and how can we make it work for us to beat the enemy? And these two really kind of come up with it. Um, the South, okay, you have Robert E. Lee son of Light Horse Harry Lee from the American War of Independence. Had to get that plug in. 
Um, for anyone who knows me, I'm a historian of the War of Independence, so this is <laughs> that, that's more my, my bailiwick. At any rate, uh, Lee did graduate second in his class from West Point, served with distinction in the Mexican War, um, was actually the first choice of the U.S. government to be the commanding general. He was Lincoln's first choice to be commanding general of the Union armies at the outset of the American Civil War. And as many people know, he retired, as he put it, rather than raise his sword against Virginia, his home state. Um, he eventually comes out of retirement and helps supervise and assist the defense of Virginia during what's called the Peninsular Campaign in 1862. Now, that being said, um, Lee is often given this reputation as a, as a sort of military genius of the Civil War, and I really don't see that. Um, when he, I, I think it's more balanced to say that when this guy is fighting defensively, when he digs in and decides he's not going to budge, he will make you suffer to try and force him to move. He will inflict grievous casualties. He has wonderful setup series of defenses where to get through, you just base, there's just nothing you can do but bleed. He makes you pay. But, and if you stop and think, the problem with General Lee is this, okay? Going back to where I started, the Confederacy's overall plan is to hold on, right? They've actually got what they want, independence. So their real goal is to fight defensively, to keep what they've got. Well, this guy keeps going on offensives that in the end managed to cripple his own armies. He kills more Confederates that way. He's almost a, an asset for the Union Army. Because, you know, this, the first time he goes on an offensive in 1862, it ends at Antietam. Okay? The second time it ends at a small town some of you may have heard of called Gettysburg, after which his army is crippled, and it's never the same again. Um, so its leadership becomes a real problem there. Okay? Then applying the strategy, let's talk military capabilities. Okay? Population, total population of the United States according to the 1860 census is 31,443,321.5. Just checking. Okay. Um, out of that, 3.9 million, close to 4 million were slaves. Um, you have nearly 5.5 million whites in the north or in the south. You have 22 million whites in the north. So if you're going to fight a war of mass armies, who's got an edge already? And the other problem here is, you know, it's it, okay. Not that's that's the total po white population of the south. Not only is part of that going to be female, obviously, but you can't even send all your military-age males away because you've got to keep someone watching those nearly four million people you have in chains lest they get the you know, idea that this is their chance, right? So you can never bring everything you've got to the table. Um, this, is, this is a problem, Sal. Okay? Railroad mileage. You've got 22, if you're going to transport people and hit your opponent repeatedly, it helps to be able to move people around. Well, the North can do, this is a little bit deceiving, though, I would argue, and here's why. Um, this map represents it somewhat, but if you're familiar with the, with the topography of the South, there's a huge number of small waterways down there, okay? So one of the reasons, the South doesn't need as many railroads to move people. They've got a lot of a, a river system that they can do that with, but still, okay, um, rivers freeze, and, and if it's really dry, they dry up too. 
um, railroads can keep going. And, and especially you've got to kind of consider when 97% of your weapons industry is in the north, <clears throat> and I've often heard it said, you know, they had spirit in the south, and that may be true, but, I, you know, as I often tell my U.S. history classes, if I were joining a football team and I said, yeah, where's the pads and the helmets? Oh, well, we've got spirit. No, thanks. Um, you know, this is, this is a little bit ludicrous. Um, so what does all this mean? Well, during the Civil War, and one of the things that, that's really important to bear in mind with everything is you get the invention of what's called modern war. Roughly defined, that's when you use all the capabilities of your state in some way or another, your economy, your population, uh, your government, and so forth, to successfully prosecute this conflict. It's a struggle for national survival, okay? Which means you get the introduction of all kinds of new technologies. Railroads are used for... Um, military purposes for the first time. Okay, you get the development of wholly new types of military technology. This is the USS Monitor, first ironclad. All right. um, this is a very different war than people have experienced prior. Okay, so a lot of the old ideas, even the ideas from Napoleon, don't necessarily hold in the new environment. And this is a problem, um, it's, it, and, and I can tell you with some certitude, it's still a problem for military planners and theorists right now. Okay, there are people right now who are grappling with this. Um, so finally, conclusion is, given the type of war that emerged here in North America, it should be clear the Confederacy never possessed any real chance of achieving their goals. Okay, they couldn't maintain independence Given their, given their lack of population, lack of industry, lack of material, and the idea that they tried to hold on to everything. And, and I think they started to appreciate this. So the fault, I would say, lies not with the actors, but with historians who for, you know, 150 years now have been saying, but if only the South did dot, 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 they could have won. Well, no, not really. If you, if you look every, at everything here objectively and stack it up, no. There's nothing to base it on. So, thank you very much. Are there any questions? Got the roving mic. No? Oh, I think we have one in the back. Uh-oh. This one could be a ringer. What's that? Yeah, maybe. Um, in your estimation, then, how, how significant, uh, how decisive was uh, the Battle of Gettysburg? There seems to always be that grand debate of the decisiveness of Gettysburg. <laughs> I, I am a believer in the decisive battle. Um, and there is a debate amongst military historians, do battles matter? Um, and I would say certainly in that case, yes, um, for a couple of reasons. It, it cripples Lee's army. The Army of Northern Virginia never goes on an offensive again. They can't make up the manpower they've lost. But beyond that, I think it's incredibly significant for Northern morale. This has been a long war, and they haven't seen much success. There have been a lot of defeats on the East Coast. Um, this is a major, major victory in a theater where there hadn't been many victories. And, uh, and again, 
Um, one thing I didn't really touch on here, the timing couldn't have been better. You know, I, I always tell students in my U.S. history classes, if you were, if you were going to hire an ad agency to do propaganda for the North, they couldn't come up with something better than one major defeat of the Confederacy on July 3rd, followed by another major defeat on the 4th of July. I mean, two back-to-back -back and the second on Independence Day. You know, come on, let's, you can't do better than that. So I think it is, it's, it's really telling. Um, you also get the movement, and, and actually it's not only perceived that way in the North through their newspapers, uh, but I heard a paper a couple years ago at a conference arguing there's something in Civil War history called the cult of the lost cause. You know, that it, we had never had a chance, as I put it, but they, wasn't it grand, wasn't it honorable that they did it anyway? That doesn't begin after the war. This guy was arguing that it actually starts after Gettysburg, that the people, which you've really got to worry about if you're a Southern politician, when your own people start going, wow, we don't have a chance. That's not a good sign for your, for your country's survival. Yeah. Um, a very good question. Thank you. Any others? We have one back here. This is when Stone, Stonewall Jackson died. Uh, the Confederates were losing morale. How important was his death to how, the South? Like, uh, how demoralizing was his death to like, the Confederacy status on the war? His, a, a very good question, his, that's another problem, and that actually kicks, is, is at the outset of the, what becomes the Gettysburg campaign. Um, and, and yeah, Jackson's death, because herein lies the problem, um, southern, southern ministers tended to use, you know, tended to say, especially during this first couple of years, God is on our side, as, as the ministers often do in wartime, right? Um, Herein lies the problem with Jackson. Jackson is killed by Confederate sentries. It's a friendly fire. Well, he's not killed outright. He's wounded in the arm. The arm is amputated. An infection sets in and he dies. Okay. Um, so the problem then is, how do you explain that from the pulpit? God is on our side, but this friendly fire incident deprived us of one of our best leaders. Huh. Maybe God isn't on our side, and it starts the uncertainty. Um, and and I and I'd say you know Gettysburg certainly kind of just drills that in. Once you know the the beginning of the campaign, you've lost. And, and again, uh, it's often put out. Um, Stonewall Jackson was referred to as as Lee's right hand, right, or Lee's right arm. So you know Jackson lost his left arm, Lee lost his right. Um, and then at, by the end of the campaign, he's lost much of his army. This was not a good year for the Confederacy. I, yes. I have a follow-up. So I, I'll challenge you a little bit on the, the, the South was destined to lose because there's many wars where one side wins most of the battles and they end up losing the war, right? Namely, Vietnam would be a great example. Yeah, French and Algiers is another one. They right, actually so defeated the opponent and then gave them the country. There's many... Uh, especially Northern Democrats running against Lincoln, saying end the war. I mean, it really is about who's going to give up first, and there are many times where the North felt like they were yeah. on the way to giving up. So, I mean, isn't that the argument against your thesis? Defend, defend. Defend. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure I understand the question then. So run it by me again. It, it's not inevitable, right? If it's the, the North could have lost easily. They just need to have a Democratic president elected, and they decide to quit fighting. Well, how do you elect a Democratic president in the North? 
you'd keep losing. I mean, it was on the ver- like Lincoln's victory wasn't a, a gimme. I don't think in the second. Well, his, well, his his reelection though. One of the things that's different is this is the first time that Union soldiers get to vote. Um, serving Union soldiers. And you also get this idea that spreads among the camps, right, that, like, the Lincoln, the, the Democratic candidate, the, the challenger to Abraham Lincoln in 1864 is George McClellan. Right? Um, and the, much of the Republican sort of political rhetoric is that to vote for McClellan is to, you know, because McClellan's running on a platform of stop the fighting and have a negotiated peace. And, and so the Republican strategists are kind of brilliant in this. They say, look, a vote for McClellan is basically you know, telling the soldiers, look, vote for McClellan. That's basically saying that everything your comrades in arms died for is purposeless. It's useless. What a way to galvanize a significant block of the population behind your cause. You, know? um, it, it, you would have to... But again, you get these very far-fetched arguments and, and very random. I mean, I, you know, my defense on a, on a bit higher level then would be everything I've seen that argues the Confederates had a chance ends up kind of going in this direction of, well, how do you get McClellan elected? You know, like, where do you find the votes to actually accomplish that fact? Um, for example... Uh, James McPherson, who was one of the most well-known Civil War historians in the country, did a piece a while ago. There was a, a book of hypothetical histories that came out, Hypothetical Endings. It was called What If? And so he dealt with the, how, do, how could the Confederates have won. His explanation was, George Gordon Meade is killed on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg while trying to rally Union troops on Little Round Top. The, the Union army routes... Lee runs on or goes on a rampage in western Pennsylvania, which, and, and that's not enough. Then you have a switch in, you know, because this northern state has been decimated by a Confederate army, then you have a shift in the 1864 elections, which then puts, doesn't put a peace Democrat in the White House, but does put enough peace Democrat senators and congressmen in to push for a negotiated peace. So that, and again, and I would certainly defer to McPherson because he's, pretty much the top guy, or until recently was the top guy in the industry, just retired a couple years ago. Um, but, you, you know, you see where you you get like this series of if, then, if, then, if, then, and it gets so far out that, okay, how are you going to line all of those up to actually occur? Whereas when you start looking at just like the weight of, you know, we have 97% of the weapons industry. That's fact. We have that. It's not, a, you know, it's not a hypothetical. Where are you going to get weapons? And by 1863-64, the blockade is pretty solid. So you're not going to get weapons in. You know, and, and by the end of the war, they're, they're catching Confederate soldiers who have parts of a uniform but no weapon. How do you fight a war when you can't arm your soldiers? It's kind of a problem. But... Any other questions? We'll turn it, yeah, Troy said we'll turn this into a faculty debate. But um, I was just curious, do you think it would have mattered? You know, obviously, we have the hindsight of right, you know, yeah. 2020, you know, of course, right? Um, but maybe had the South been a little um, more patient in the sense of maybe trying to you know, not rush to secession and actually develop industry, develop a, a weapons manufacturing base. 
uh, try to get some weapons in. I mean, I mean, I, I know these are all. Yeah, no, that's another hypothetical. And again, it's a very interesting one. And I've seen there's actually been some work done on that. And there were people in the South who were taking that moderate stance, like you know, there, there's there's a a strong component in the Southern um, power holding elite, if you will, that says we have to break away. But within that, you have the firebrands, and they clearly went out eventually, right? They, but you also had more moderates who were saying, yeah, that's It's kind of like, <laughs> although one of my other colleagues might just throw something at me because I'm going to invoke Gone with the Wind here. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like the Rhett Butler character in Gone with the Wind. You know, all these guys are saying, yeah, let's go to war. And he goes, yeah, we have no factories. We have no munitions plants. We have, you know, we don't have this. We don't have this. And there were people in the 1850s who, in the South who were seriously looking at that and saying, independence, yes, but let's make sure we, ha we have the capability to stand up as an independent state. Let's make sure we have an industrial base, and we're actually starting to do that in the South. It's a very small level at this point, but they were actually starting to address that. If it, it, it might have been a somewhat, but then you have to count, like, how, how long? I mean, at the very two decades, at, at least, to really build a substantial industrial, but if it takes off, if it really starts to roll. So, it's a great question. That's a fun question to think about. Anyone else? How about some, how about some student questions? Or, how, or, or we're here just until, to get extra credit. <laughs> I guess we should... Uh, well, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you all very much for your time. And I hope you enjoyed. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.